Shelly, how this kind of gone? We we've just started this on Monday. <clears throat> so what we did is basically the guys in here. You you may have met Wilkins, Bradshaw, Ray, probably not Cam McMullen down there or Whistler, um, but basically all these guys. So Wilkins, Bradshaw, and Ray Mack, I played with at Nevada. Cam coached me at Nevada, and then I played with Jake at um, summer in summer ball, and so we've stayed connected since then. And what we've kind of decided to do was. Hey, we've got all this time. Everybody's off. Nobody's doing anything. Let's just run a freaking group podcast deal and just shoot the shit and see what happens. Um, so we started just kind of talking about different topics and this week's been leadership. And I know you and I had that conversation in the car, like well, probably right before you got to spring training about leadership and kind of your viewpoint on it. And, and we had a great discussion about that and how you're going to bring that into your organization. So um, following up on this week, We've talked about a few different things, formal versus informal leadership, like how do you empower your athletes to take ownership of their career and take ownership of teams? Can you? Um, different topics like that. And so today, I just really want to open up the floor and we can just get into any aspect. Like, we'll probably ask you your view of leadership since you're coming on as a guest, but it's like an open forum. Um, anybody can go in at any time, um, two to three minutes a clip, whatever you need to do, no rush on anything. Um, and any questions, we'll, we'll shoot it out. Um, the last few times, Cam McMullen, so he's um, done a lot of research in the leadership deal, and he's got so much wisdom in this topic, man. It's been insane what at least I've learned so far, like just through this first two weeks or two days of doing what we're doing. So usually we'll have him open it up with uh, maybe a topic. So, Cam, do you know any anything, you got anything on your mind for today that you could think of maybe that popped in? It, one thing I've always been fascinated with, and, and Shelly, nice to meet you. My name's Cam. Um, I work currently as a recruiting coordinator at Chapman University um, in Orange County. So uh, nice to virtually meet you. I'm excited for today. Um, the one thing that I was certainly wanting to pick your brain on just throughout today at some point was so often, at least in the realm of professional baseball, you have, you know, the manager versus in college, you have a head coach. And I've always been so fascinated about in professional baseball, so much of that role is management, big picture, letting coaches, you know, you have the bench coach, pitching coach, hitting coach, so on and so forth, where at the college level, it's head coach and coaches wanting to essentially try and do everything. And I've always been so fascinated about how that split takes place from college to professional baseball and some of the things that you've seen both from your playing career and then now being in coaching as well is why that might happen and how maybe some of the positives from both can relate to one another. So that's just been a question I've always loved asking people in pro ball about. That's a, that's a good one. Um, my first taste of coaching when I got done playing was at University of Arizona with Andy Lopez. And um, I got to see this in action right out of the shoot. Um, Andy Lopez, he did a great job at leading the program but he also empowered his coaches extremely well. He, uh, each, each coach had a little area of expertise and, you know, they got to go full bore and coach the players like as who they are without Andy, like overshadowing them. He gave direction. He gave some simple guidelines. A simple one is, uh, uh I had the outfielders and one key word that Andy wanted me to use was make sure the outfielders, um, when they hit the cutoff, man, they're aiming at the knees. That's just, it's just one keyword he used. So like I would coach them how I wanted to coach them, but I made sure I used his language. 
So we all understood the same language. Um, so he empowered me to do that. Um, one thing that I think about as a manager is um, almost you think about, you could pull up a uh, Harvard business re review books. You could read articles. And I think as a manager, you would, you wouldn't, you wouldn't gravitate most of your energy to leadership books or coaching books as you would management books. Um, which is really interesting because you have, you have the coaches you have to empower, uh, you have to work from top down. You have to follow, um, the, you have to create the environment that your leadership up above you wants to create. Um, you have to create a really positive communication chain between the training staff, traveling secretary, um, each coach. You have to kind of create an environment where everybody gets what they need to be the most successful person they can be. Uh, you have to create a, a, a perfect communication chain with the players so they know their expectations. They know what their role is on the team. They need to feel valued. They need to know what they're doing every single day. They can't feel confused. Um, you need to create a vision of the uh, team and the organization of how we are going to play baseball, what is our style, who we are. Um, so you're doing more of that big picture stuff than you are hands-on stuff like you would be in college. Uh, the college the head coach is um, most of the time he's going to spend most of his energy coaching in the area in the field that he wants. And in the minor leagues, you get to do that. Uh, some as a, as a manager, um, most of that is, you know, with team defense or um, this is, this is weird. I, 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 when I was managing my little field of coaching was catching, even though I've never caught, I just studied the crap out of it with uh, some of the other catching coordinators and so I coached the catchers. Uh, most of the time, my coaching just involved um, talking with them and helping them think through things and coming up with answers, not really telling them what to do. Um, so it's, it's, it's two completely different areas. Um, it's, it's kind of fun to be on that management side because, you know, as, as a manager, you're, you know, you get, you're multifaceted. You're a leader, uh, you're a coach, and you're a manager in the sense of, you know, work. So you're, you're all three things, and, and it's a lot of fun. Um, as a college head coach, you're the GM, you're the manager, you're the advanced scout, you're the hitting coach, you're, you're everything. And it's a very, very difficult job, especially with as small staff as you have and as much um, administration work that you have to do. Um, you almost have less time in college baseball than you do in professional baseball as much as we're away from our families during the season. And it's a, it's a very tough job. That's beautiful. Uh, that's absolutely beautiful. And, and before I even continue, we're rolling into this fellas. So this is, this is, this is good. <laughs> this is good. There's an, I'll go back and do an intro eventually, but this is fire, man. I think just learning the differences between a manager and um, some of the other aspects of how do you do it in college? How do you do it in pro ball? Something that always amazed me. Well, one before anything even happens, my favorite line that you ever said was embrace the suck. And you said it with this massive smile, like <laughs> in front of everybody. We're like, wait, what? Like Shelly, one Shelly's always coming in with straight fire wisdom and he's dropping nuggets for us, firing people up. But he just goes, 
All right, guys, it's a big old motivational talk. We've got everybody in the organization here. I'm doing what we're doing, and like it's the big team dinner. And he goes, all right, you got to embrace the suck. And we're like, whoa, what? He totally hit us off board, like supposed to talk about a championship team that he won over in Hillsborough when he was managing there. And he mentions embrace the suck, and that's a, a beautiful thing, I think, that you've got to realize in some of this stuff as well, just getting in. I just wanted to hit on that real quick because it fired me up. And before we were getting on this, I'm like, what are some good Shelly stories? I'm like, that's a good Shelly story because it's it's PG, and it's freaking fires me up. It was cool. Um, but, Cam, thanks for, like, opening up with that question, man. I think it's good to just – for the viewers to know that and for us as athletes, coaches, um, et cetera, to understand the differences that these guys are going through because from the outside point of view, you look at a manager and – in high school and you look at a manager in college and then a manager in pro ball and you see um, the results aspect, but you don't see all the things that they got to do. And like you said, Shelly, the college guy, and you guys know this as well as anybody, like you are freaking in it. Like you are in the thick of it in pro ball, a little different. So um, I'm going to open up the floor. Any of you guys got any questions you want to pop off uh, to Shelly or just to the group? But um, first and foremost, Shelly, thanks for joining us, man, and, and taking the time out of your day to just provide some wisdom for the viewers. And I've got some notes from our conversation, too, last time that I want to hit on, too. Go ahead, Ray. Awesome. Shelly, hey, uh, we were talking the last couple of days about how leaders, for the most part, skill set aside, make everyone around them better, um, especially their teammates. So I wanted to know, is, is there a guy that took you under their wing at Arizona or when you got the pro ball that really helped you improve? Um, yeah, there, there's every level that I, I've bumped up to, there's always been somebody that I've that has helped me that is uh, almost served as my guiding light of how to act, what to do. Um, I've been very fortunate over my career and over my life to have lots of those people uh, in college. When I was a freshman, it was – you know, the juniors and seniors, um, uh, throwing just names out there, Troy Gingrich, uh, Tony Milo, um, you know, these are all guys that are extremely successful in life right now. And, you know, Troy Gingrich is a hitting coach in, um, with the Washington Nationals organization. He's still in baseball. Um, you know, these are just small examples. The funniest thing is I, 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 real, I really realized this when I got into coaching. Players listen to players more than they do coaches, all right? So in order to be, like, to have your biggest influence as a coach or as a manager, it's to find that guy that the players really gravitate towards and who really leads the players and develop that trust and that relationship with him and deliver your message through him. So he ends up being an extension of you. And – you know, when you have that, the players will listen to him and then you'll start to see that they start to model him and then he models you and you really get your message across. Um, so I had those guys in pro ball. Um, one of the things that I, I've said before, um, I might have said this to Austin, that um, a team is only as good as its, as its leader and or as, a team is only as, as good as its best player. And this is why I say that the best player is default uh, going to be the leader of the team. And the reason is, is every single player on the team subconsciously wants to be as good as the best player. Everybody wants to, um, if a guy's hitting 350, a bunch of home runs, 
everybody wants to do that. So they're going to watch what that guy does every single day. They're going to watch how he works. They're going to see every little detail that he does. If the guy is a turd and he doesn't work hard and he's just got that natural ability, that has the potential to be cancerous to the whole team. And they, you know, they might not be able to play like that. Uh, let's throw a huge example out there, Manny Machado. Um, there might be a big reason why the Padres and the Orioles never really had success with Manny Machado as their best player because this guy, he plays at 60%, all right? Like, so now you have all these young guys and you have all these other people who see Machado just rake all the time and make these great plays. And they're like, maybe I should go about my work and play like Manny Machado does. And next thing you know, like, they're failing because not everybody can play at 60%. Or at 70%. You just can't be successful doing that. Think about Pete Rose. You think Pete Rose could have been Pete Rose if he dropped his effort level down to Manny Machado's? No chance. But do you think Manny Machado could be the Manny Machado we know if he jumped up his effort level to Pete Rose? Probably not. So you have a you gotta figure this stuff out. Um when I was with uh, New York, everybody wanted to be like Derek Jeter. All right, like Derek Jeter was the coolest guy in the world. Um, he was a winner. He, everyone loved him. He was an outstanding player. So they modeled him. They modeled his behavior on the field. They modeled his behavior off the field. He was the dude. And I think that was the primary reason of success uh, throughout the ages. Um, but you also have all those side guys. Um, when I came up to the big leagues, it was, um, you know, Derek Jeter was the first one that, uh, you know, he welcomed me to the team, took me to his house for breakfast. But um, it was a, the the no-name guys like Ron Valone, Andy Phillips. Uh, these guys would um, hang out with me um, and take me under the wing, tell me, like, what to do, things to do. And um, they're the ones that really showed me, like, what are the little things I need to take care of here, you know, to be a, a good big leaguer, a good presence in the clubhouse. Ray, I don't know if you, you go ahead, Ray. No, no, that's awesome. That's perfect. Exactly what we're looking for. And, um, and you know, all of us too, in the same aspect have had a guy or different guys at each level that have helped us get to where we're at. And I think we've all kind of taken pieces of them uh, and molded our own leadership style because of it. So it's good to hear that the same thing happened with you going up through uh, all the way to the Yankees. It's awesome. Yeah, no, I think it's it's cool to just hear some of these stories about good leaders. And the last two episodes have been just fire because um, we've heard from you guys firsthand as collegiate coaches at every single level, which is really cool. We've got literally every level in here except for, I think, NAIA, which is awesome experience because there's so much versatility here. And a common theme is like model greatness. I love the term copy genius. Like, why would you recreate the wheel? Why would you try and go and do something totally outside the norm? Of course, being innovative and creative is awesome. You got to do that as well. And I think that's what makes good leaders. But copy genius. If somebody's done something before, like, I think there's a reason why they've been successful, such as Jeter or such as some of these guys. And Cam, go ahead, man. Shelly, one thing I was curious about was, you know, so often we set goals for ourselves and we spend so long working towards a goal that once we get there, it's almost like shocking of, what do we do now? And you spent, you know, your career working to get to the big leagues. Once you got there, how long did it take you to kind of conceptualize, oh my gosh, like I'm finally here. And what helped you 
understand the things that you needed to do to stay there. For example, I'm just thinking of some, you know, maybe a younger kid grows up wanting to go to BYU and he gets the opportunity to go there and he spent so much time investing getting there that the thought of what do I need to do to succeed now that I'm here maybe has never even come into the mindset. So what allowed you to make that transition and get past this nostalgia of like, oh my gosh, like I am actually in the big leagues now, but now I have to work to, to do whatever I can to stay here and succeed here. Um, that's, that's, that's a good one. Um, I think there's a, the six years in the minor leagues really prepares you for this and you need to prepare the right way. And uh, there's one thing I try to tell people all the time. Um, this holds true for everybody in life, no matter, no matter what, but I'm going to use professional ball players as my example. Um, the day you get to the big leagues, you are immediately judged as a big leaguer. So you better be ready to perform from pitch one. Because if you don't, your, your stint in the big leagues is going to be very small. There's very few people that they're going to say, oh, he is so good. We're going to give him a full year. Or we're going to give him years and years to, you know, see his talent. You know, those are – we think of those players, you know, but they're the ones that are the highlights, like uh, the top prospects, you know, that they say, oh, you know, he's got the talent, so we're just going to keep giving him chances. But nobody sees those um, – those back into the bullpen pitchers that really need to deal from pitch one, those, uh, those filler players that like come up to, you know, replace an injured player. Like this is your shot. You have to succeed. Uh, you're judged immediately. So when you do get up there, you need to be ready to perform. So you can't be in the minor leagues. You can't be in triple A and just say, I just need my chance. Like I just, I just need my chance. That's all I need. No, you need to be good now because you might get that call tonight. You don't know that. You might get that call, and as soon as you get up there, you better be ready. So everything you do today, you better prepare yourself to be the best possible player you can and do it over and over and over. And this is all part of the thing that Austin was talking about earlier, embraces suck. That is difficult. It is absolutely difficult to be locked in every single day not knowing if you're going to be in that position tomorrow, but you need to be because that's, what's going to make you good when you get there, you have to be good. Otherwise you're not going to sustain a career. You can't just say, Oh, when I get there, I'll lock it in. Like that doesn't happen. You know, locking it in, you know, being able to focus hardcore takes practice and practice. You have to develop habits and that takes repetition after repetition after repetition. So you have to do that in those crappy environments in the minor leagues in order to be able to say, okay, I'm going to lock it in in the big leagues. In uh, 2007, it was my sixth year in the minor leagues. I was fortunate enough, I was working out down at the U of A and uh, Carl Keel was there and he pulled me aside. This guy's a, you know, he was a great mental genius. And he pulled me aside and he sat there and he, he told me, you got to stop pleasing people. Like, you got to stop pleasing people. It's time you, like, you turn it on, you lock it in, you develop the fire, and you do whatever it takes. You don't go up to the plate and say hi to the catcher. Don't go up to the plate and say hi to the umpire. It's a battle. You lock it in, right? Be ruthless out there. You go get it. So it, like, lit a fire into me. So in spring training on, 
I had this fire that I'm going to totally turn the page. I'm not going to be this, this nice guy out in the field, this happy, friendly guy that everyone loves. There, you'll see two sides of me. There's the, the joking around, having fun, Shelly. And then when it's game time or work time, there's this hardcore focus, Shelly, that like, they'll get after it. And that's when I developed that. I was no longer the happy, fun Shelly all the time. It was a hardcore focus, Shelly, with purpose, with intent. And you need to have that day in and day out. Um, so you can't just say, oh, when I get there, I need to stay here. No, it's a mentality that you have that you need to grain yourself all the time through development. And you never lose that mentality. Because when you get to the big leagues, it's the same baseball game. It's the same ball. It's the same field. It's just a bigger stand with more people. You still got to control your emotions. You still got to control your adrenaline. You got to rise to the challenge. And more importantly, you're going to have more adrenaline. So you got to be able to control it. And that takes practice. So you got to develop that beforehand. So it's not, oh, I'm going to get to the big leagues. I'm going to stay here. It's no, I'm going to kick ass everywhere I go. Nothing is going to change. I'm going to kick ass in the minor leagues. I'm going to kick ass in practice. I'm going to kick ass when I wake up in the morning and I look myself in the mirror. I'm going to kick ass because that's who I am. And when I get to the big leagues, when I get there, I'm going to kick ass and I'm never going to stop kicking ass. So that's the mentality that I feel you need to have to stay there. That's the mentality I think you need to have to succeed and to be the best at anything. I'm ready to run through a wall. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> There's going to be some little kid listening today that goes out and starts ripping 100 push-ups out there by his pool because he's just freaking fired up on fuego, ready to go. But um, you mentioned the intent. The intent. Now, um, Jake, I'll let you get into this in a minute. I just want to just touch on that intent aspect real quick. Like, is there anything that an athlete can do to build their intent? Like, is that just like – do you think intent's like just – embezzled inside of you from a young age or do you have to develop an intent and a purpose with everything that you do as an athlete because I know just put myself back in those shoes in college and in pro ball and even high school like my intent was always get to the big leagues but then it became this expectation like when I get to the big leagues, just like you just said when I get there everything will be good when I get there I'll be successful when I get there I'll have the girls when I get there I'll have the fame when I get there I'll have the money my family will be taken care of not blah blah, blah on and on and on but it was never what do I need to do now to get there and mind you, I worked hard, but I'd, I'd never really kept that in perspective of the intent on the now, like right now, right this moment. Like, do you think that's developed as an athlete or a coach? Or do you think as a coach, we can inspire the athletes to build their intent and their purpose behind every action that they have? I think as a coach, as part of, as part of one of our jobs, motiv motivate and inspire, teach. Uh, Teaching is part of that. Um, you almost have to teach people how to develop that. Um, one of the hardest things I think to do is, um, I think, like develop your value system. Like what, what, what things are important to you as a, as a player, as a coach, um, as a person, as a friend, what are your values? What are your core values? I think it's really hard for someone to really say those and be clear about those. Um, so that takes inspiration. You know, who do you want to be? Oh, you know, I, I, I really don't know. You know, sometimes you need to really search inside, dig deep and you need inspiration. You need moments of inspiration. You need to be around people and hear certain words or certain things and it inspires you. I want to be like that. Or it might lead you to a different ways. So 
that is that is a role of a coach to have those conversations to fuel that fire for people to change people um i don't know where i was going with this but um that is that is something that i think is part of our jobs and is very important absolutely no you're spot on man i, just, I was just curious like Hey, is this something that we can empower our athletes with? And I think you can by being inspiring and like just the energy that you bring showing up every day that that shows a lot in, in uh, the athletes, I believe. If you think about it, if you think about it, Austin, like I'm going to go to um, the type of player, like it's real easy to say, what's your end goal? Um, I've done this a little bit. I've done this a little bit with myself lately. Uh, I want to be a big league manager. Okay. I'll flat out say it. I want to be a big league manager, but is that what I really want to be? Okay. Now I really break it down. Is a, being a big league manager going to make me happy? Is it going to fulfill me? Why do I want to be a big league manager? What is it in, uh, as a big league manager that makes me want to be that? All right. So I start breaking it down and I'm going to tell you um, that it's more than just the title manager. So the thing about it is more than just the title. I want to play baseball in the major leagues. I want to, you know, play baseball in college. That's just the title. All right. Um, I want to be a big league manager because, okay, I love, I love um, taking a group of people from all different backgrounds from all over the country, all over the world. And I love taking different personalities and bringing them together and having everyone come up with one common goal and they fight for that goal tooth and nail. And it's the coolest thing in the world to me to sit back and watch everybody that didn't know each other at the beginning, all of a sudden they're best friends and their family by the end of the year. Like I'm absolutely addicted to that. I love that. I love that more than anything, building a team. I love the competition of winning games. I, 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 I'm a side adrenaline junkie. Um, I, I love just like that high pressure moment where you have to make a yes or no decision and everything like rides on it. And, I love that feeling like I can either like succeed and be like really high or be really low. Like I love the highs and the lows. I hate the middle ground. I love like the peaks and I love the valleys. Like anyone who like you think about baseball. Okay. Like nobody gets to feel those feelings in life. Like we do when you strike out with the bases loaded in the last inning of the game and you just lost the team, the game like that is an experience. Like, a feeling in life that we get to have that nobody else gets to have it is awesome. Like it's, it's a horrible feeling like crying, like thank that I failed everybody, but in the whole grand scheme of life, awesome. So I am so grateful for that. And I love it. Like I love those moments. Um, that's why one thing, like I, I wish more than anything, I just had one more at bat, just one at bat, just so I could have those feelings. Nothing beats that in the world, but you get that in a little bit managing, you know, taking out a pitcher, doing a certain thing, uh, ninth inning, let's, let's bring in the whole outfield and have an eight man infield, uh, you know, like you, all that stuff. Um, I absolutely love that. Um, so going back to it, you sit back and you say, Let's not say, what do you want to do? Oh, I want to make it to the big leagues. I want to be a manager. Okay. Who do you want to be? All right. And I, I love this line, write your, um, when, when, pretend like you're at a funeral and you, somebody's going to, what, what is it called? Is somebody's eulogy, write your eulogy. All right. Write your eulogy. 
who do you, what do you want people to say about you? Who do you want to be? All right. Like, who do you want to be? What is special to you? And live that, like live that every day, like search for that, live that, be that person that you want people to say about you when it's all said and done. I remember as a player growing up and I said, as I'm playing in the minor leagues all the way up, I said, when I'm all done playing, all I want is for people to say that, ah, Shelly Duncan, that guy played hard. That guy played hard. Like, I don't want – oh, Shelly Duncan, he hit, he hit 280. Oh, man, he hit some homers. No, I want him to say he played hard. So I had to live it every single day because I knew that one guy might only see me today this one time in whole life. And I might be playing against this guy. Oh, I might be playing against his shortstop. And I want him to know that I come in sliding hard, you know, like things like that. Um, so you got to live it. So it's not necessarily I want to be a big leaguer. I want to be this. It's who do you want to be inside? All of that is a byproduct of, you know, becoming a big league player, becoming a manager, becoming a head coach of a major university. That's a byproduct of excellence. That's a byproduct of you being awesome at who you are and who you want to be. Absolutely beautiful, man. That's, you can't put that any better, man. Jake, what do you got for me? I know you, you had your mic unmuted. I know you were looking uh, – Say something. Go ahead. Yeah. Austin, Shelly, Jacob Whistler, Umpqua Community College. Thanks for coming on, man. All your stuff's been amazing so far. Um, we've kind of talked about the past uh, week of obviously the, the point of leadership, and you kind of stepped into it a little bit today of um, the, the preparedness that you talked about with, with your athletes and professional ranks and in college. Um, I wanted to ask you how important – how important to your guys' routines, um, their routine on a daily basis, how they show up to the yard, what they do before, um, because I think it's a big struggle with our guys at the community college level, um, trying to teach 18-year-olds what a routine looks like outside of class uh, um, and, and practice. What are they doing on the other hours of the day where they need to be dominating, getting their minds right? I wanted, I wanted to pick your brain on how important um, routines are with, with the guys at the big league level and the, and the higher up pro ball levels. That's a good one. I'm going to grab my computer charger. Hold on really quick. No problem. We had a – one of the rugs flew out here, and my dogs are like – they think it's this massive person. They're freaking out on me. <laughs> um, <laughs> They're going crazy. The, it's funny. You, you see um, – you don't really see professional baseball players develop routines until – or really solid routines until double-A, triple-A. And um, – then their routines end up becoming their lifeblood and they serve, they serve multiple purposes. Um, one, the routine, uh, it, it can almost be ritualistic. You know, if you think about, um, putting that mind, getting that mind in that flow state, you know, a lot of times like, you know, people not even in sports, like if they want to get in the zone to perform and do something, uh, really good, like what do they do? They have a morning, morning routine, you know, like, I'm going to get locked in, waking up, um, taking a cold shower, brushing my teeth. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to go on a run. And if I do all those things, man, do I feel zen and I can get locked in. You know, so it's like their routine gets them in that flow state of mind where they, in their own little performance, they can be really good. They're like locked in. Um, in baseball, sometimes it's really hard when we have travel, when you have different things going on in your life. Um, a baby crying, uh, you know, for the 
the husband, um, kids running around, uh, you know, the day's just blown up somehow. You lose your routine. Sometimes you feel like I can't get in that flow state. So when it comes time to locking in and work or doing what you're supposed to do, it's hard to really get to that place. So in, in sports, the routine really helps the performance. And the routine doesn't really become the routine unless you do it every single day. So you can't just say, oh, it's my routine and do it twice a week or only before games or only before, you know, like it, it, it's not a routine. Then. Um, you can't get in that, that frame of mind unless you do it every single day. And, and you're only able to do that because that allows you to shut off your conscious mind and you slip into the unconscious. Now you're doing things by habit and now you're slowly getting that mindset going into that that unconscious state where now you just do and you don't really do things with paralyzing thought. So um, routine mindset, that's one of them. The other thing is uh, it helps you get in 1% better every single day. So if you, you got to develop the right routine for yourself. If it's um, as a player, um, you have tight hips or you have weak shoulders or um you really need to activate your core to prevent injury. You have to add something into your routine um, to get your body ready for your performance every single day. And what that routine will do, it will slowly over time, it will, you know, it will increase your flexibility. It will uh, increase your core strength. It will increase your shoulder strength, your, you know, your movement. Um, the routine helps you 1% every single day. And there's a huge difference between um, – trying to get better physically by working out in the routine, the workout, when you work out to try to get better, you're breaking your body down a little bit, you know, so your performance is going to decrease. You don't want that when you perform every day, or if you want to be your best every day, you want uh, almost to get ready. You, you know, you want to get ready, but you want slight improvement. So the routine will help you with that. Um, I almost want to trademark this, this, this phrase. And I want to do it one day uh, when eventually down the road, if I have this manifest or book written, um, I break the day down into three, three parts, uh, practice, prepare and perform the three P's uh, the practice part. Um, you have your routine that we mentioned, and then you have, what do you need to work on? What do you need to work on to get better? Um, so, you're practicing, you're doing your routine, you're getting better. Then you have the prepare part. Now you have to switch your mindset from that practice mindset of I'm getting better. I'm, I'm working on this swing or this fundamental defensively or this, you know, with my delivery, whatever it is, you're switching that mindset over to an unconscious mindset. So you're going from that conscious mindset to the unconscious mindset and getting in the zone. And because when the game starts, we're no longer, I've seen this happen to too many players where they go out into the game and they're practicing and it's an awful thing. And I'm sure I've done it. I'm sure everybody here's done it. I'm sure Austin, you've done it. You've gone into the game and you've been practicing your swing. And it's a horrible feeling because what really should happen, what's the goal of a baseball game? Not to have a perfect swing. The goal of a baseball game is to win the game. So we need to go out there with that unconscious mindset and compete and have that fire and that drive. And we need to be the best we possibly can so we can react in every single moment as quick as possible, do the right thing naturally, instinctively, unconscious, 
And we have to be able to turn our mind off and go into autopilot with all the right information that we've learned through practice and that we've worked on and that we've studied through game preparation and through video and through errors in the past. And we have to do that and we have to get into that mindset in the prepare phase. So you got practice, prepare, and then you have, or practice, prepare, then you have perform. And that's compete, just compete. I would say practice, prepare, and compete, but it wouldn't be three piece. So it's compete is go out there and win the game, you know, like play, like go out there and play, be locked in mentally for three hours. It's extremely hard. So um, you don't want to be locked in for seven hours. It's impossible to do, but be locked in for three hours, zoned in, win the game, be with your teammates, have a goal, nail it, get it done. So it all starts with that routine right there. It all starts with that routine. And the routine can even go into the prepare phase, you know, um, a little mindset, mental routine. Um, you know, I remember uh, Austin uh, watching him. It was one of those beautiful things. After uh, batting practice, he'd go in and he'd uh, meditate uh, before the game. And I, I could see his mindset completely change and get locked in. And it was one of the – it was one of my favorite players because of it, because it was so special for him to do that. And it's a very hard thing to do. But I saw him turn that switch. And that's something that every player should do. So you have to break the day down. You can't just have a practice and play. It's impossible. It will never happen. You can't just have a play because you won't get guys in that right frame of mind. You have to have all three down in order to get guys better on a daily basis, get them in the right frame of mind, and then be able to play unconsciously like kids because that's what we all want to do. You know, we want to feel like we're little kids out there playing a game trying to win. That's awesome, man. Uh, that's huge. And Jake, great question right there too, just about how to to sustain that going forward. Wilkes, what do you what do you got? Well, actually, before Wilkes gets in there, the meditation is massive, by the way. So let's plug yeah. the meditation. If you meditate or visualize on a daily basis, that is the key to manifesting what you want. And you're gonna get that book written, Shelley. I'm gonna freak I'll help you with it if we have to. But the three P's, man, that fires me up. Um, Wilkes, let it rip, man. Tell fate, hey, tell fate, quit just making a guest appearance. Tell him to say a word one time, dude. I'm tired. Of I know, I know. I should, state I guy, should. come on, man. <laughs> I know, I know. We'll get him on here sometime. But uh, getting away from the player aspect, uh, Shelly, how do you become a better coach each day? You know, what does your routine look like each day for you? That's um, that's hard. Um. It's really hard because it involves constant communication and constant relationships and listening. Um, I think a coach will be a coach will be a failure if he's just trying to tell people what to do and he's trying to get people to model himself. Um, what a good coach does is he gets people to be the best versions that they want to be. He gets them to get to the place that they want to be. And that, that involves listening. And you also have to have a really good feel of, what the environment is that day, um, who you're dealing with that day. You have to not only have a close relationship with the person as a player, but you have to have a close relationship with him as a person. Um, you know, life, life affects everybody. And, you know, it could be a dude breaking up with his girlfriend. He's going to be a mental wreck. Um, so you're dealing with a different person that day than you are another day. Um, so you constantly have to have that relationship. You constantly have to listen. Um, you need to reinforce the same message over and over and over because people want to stray. You know, it's, I, it might get tiring and boring for us to repeat the same message, but 
if we repeat the same message over and over and over, our values are clear to our players. The players know what we expect, know what we want them to be. So we have to know our values, know what's important to us. We have to repeat those every single day over and over and over. And we have to listen. We have to listen, 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 build those relationships so we can be the person that we need to be for each player. So we can serve him to be who he wants to be, to be the best version. We can help him get there. We can create the right environment for that person. We can teach in the right words. We can um, have better relationships with the uh, coaches that way. We can, we have a good relationship with the players. We can talk with the coaches and tell them what's going on. So now they know how to deal with that player. They know what's going on. Um, so listen, listen, listen is the most important thing and repeat your values as much as you possibly can. So people have clear expectations. Shelly, you mentioned something. That's, that's a great question. Wilkes just shifting gears into the coaching aspect, but I remember our conversation and I think the date my phone says like February 21st or something like that. And I wrote some notes down cause I had to pull over. I'm like, I never pull over on the side of the road. Usually I'm like multitask, but this, I'm like, dude, this is freaking fire. Like, I am pulling over for this. And something I wrote down that you said was leaders listen, just like you just said. And you mentioned listen with intent and set clear objectives and uh, capabilities. Like the clear objectives was really big to me. And something else that you mentioned was like from the top down of an organization aspect. And this is in college because you got the AD, you got the administrative uh, deal and they got to be in full support of your program. You've got the professional aspect of like, what do the GMs say? What do the scouting guys say? Like, you got a whole team of people that you've got to have aligned with the same vision, the same capabilities, like the same objectives for the program and for your university or team, whatever it is that you're running. How do you, how do you set clear expectations for your athletes, like for your athletes or for the guys like your coaches as now you've kind of shifted roles and, and you're more of the leadership role at the top up there. Like, how do you set those clear objectives for you guys what are some, some tips that you've used maybe or some things that have worked for you since you've been getting into this deal uh, I'm gonna try to simplify it um when it goes to the, the top down thing that's something that, that we talked about and I remember um I was working on my master's in leadership at Grand Canyon University and um you know there was a class on servant leadership um you know, there's a lot of a lot of classes that focus on you know working bottom up. You know, really focusing on you know the employees first, not working top down. And um, it's it was it sounded great. You know, it it, it really did sound great. But I start. I started working in professional baseball. I I went to London and uh, to a conference up there where there was um leaders from all different sports soccer rugby uh nfl nhl from all over the world and this was a this was a topic of discussion that everybody brought up and it pretty much came to one conclusion is that um leadership starts uh top down and you know if you really think about it um <laughs> imagine imagine you have a really young team a really young baseball team okay are you going to say okay guys uh we'll let our really really young guys lead the team but they're trying so hard just to 
play well or to even make the team or to even stay there. They don't have the mental capacity to lead a team. They don't have the experiences over life to know what's important. Um, so it's almost to throw leadership on players right out of the shoot, I think is almost you're doing them an injustice. You're doing them, you're not doing them phasers. You're making life harder for them. You know, you want to try to create an easy environment for them to succeed. So that's, that's the first thing. The other thing is, is um, the ownership, the ownership wants to have a vision of his organization. You know, he bought, he bought the team. He wants the Dallas, um, the Dallas Mavericks. You got Mark Cuban. He wants the Mavericks to be like who the Mavericks are. So it's everybody's job in the Mavericks to fulfill the owner's wishes. But everybody like is looking up, like, how should I act? How should I be? All right, I'm confused here. What do we stand for? Where do they, where do they get these answers? They don't look down, they look up, all right? It's natural, everybody looks up. So it's the leader of the organization's job to live what we talked about, those values, those morals, everything, all right? And then his job is to, with the people right under him, is to develop that trust and that, um, those relationships to share his values. Now, once he develops that trust, he can say, okay, guys, you go lead now. Now I'm more hands off. Now you lead. Same thing will go for like a manager and the coaching staff, all right? The manager is, he's got the, value, he's got the values and the vision of the team. Once he develops that trust with the coaches, the coaches, he can just hand it off and say, okay, guys, okay, guys go ahead and go. Now the coaches go and they do that with the players. They do that with the successful players, the players that got influence on the team might be two or three guys. It might be that one guy that everybody gravitates to like we talked about. They develop that. Now they say, okay, players, or you guys, you, we developed that trust. You know what we stand for. You share our values and our vision. Go lead. You take it and you go. Now he takes it with the players. If you develop this trust, this trust tree, which starts with listening, starts with caring, it starts with expressing your values over and over, all of a sudden, you have this organization that's built on trust. Trust and respect are the two most important things. Trust and respect. You can hand that off. And now you can say, okay, I trust everyone that we're on the same message. We speak the same language. We believe in the same things. We know what's important. Um, we respect each other. I trust you to go lead. Now you can let the younger guys go play. And now you can let them lead. Now when new guys come to the team, it was one of my, one of my favorite things. I, I did it on purpose. This wasn't like me just like copping out or giving stuff to the players. When we had a new player on our team, I didn't want the responsibility to tell that player what the signs were or our team rules. I wanted the players to tell the new player what the signs were and the team rules. All right. Like I gave that to the players because it's their clubhouse like we're in this together and I had to trust in that group of players that they would do it. Whenever we got somebody new, they would bring him in and make him a part of our culture by just little things like that. Um, so it starts top down and where did all my stuff come from? All of my stuff came from Mike Bell, our farm director. Where did his stuff come from? Came from the GM and it was all top down and you're not copycatting who that person is, but you're taking those core values and then 
you're taking them and then you're using just who you are and kind of taking them from there and being yourself and extending that trust tree. So uh, to me, that's, that's how a successful system works. That's how you get everybody to really buy into those values and those messages together. And um, I think that's a very important thing of leadership. Yeah, the trust trees, it's a beautiful thing. And um, just understanding that it everybody is looking up. Like we're all watching our CEO and how they respond to the situations. Like right now, guys in college are responding to how their head coach is handling the situation. Is he mother effing people? Are the assistants mother effing people and blaming the world? Or are they like inspiring and encouraging the kids through this time, giving them options to use uh, different tools that they can use, maybe getting on a Zoom call like this with somebody outside that can help keep them sane and keep them focused. So I think that's a big thing, Shelly. And it's great that you mentioned that. Um, Shawshank, what do you got? Yeah, just going a a little different direction. um, I feel like one thing I've always kind of believed is coaches that have success for a long period of time are able to be adaptable. Um, things change. Uh, you know, people, people are different. Kids today are different than kids of 20 years ago. The game's changing. Uh, it's a different present now than it was 15 years ago. And you haven't been in the game now for quite a while at a lot of different levels. Um, what do you think has helped you kind of adapt and what do you, what are some examples of things that you view as important or not important, uh, you know, that are, as opposed to, you know, 10, 15 years ago? I think the, uh, the most important thing is, is figuring out how to communicate. Um, that's, that's number one. I think that's the most important thing is, is how to communicate. Uh, that's changed. Uh, with every generation. Um, I think you guys, I, I talked to Austin about this one day. Um, you guys are dealing with uh, Gen Z right now, and these guys are starting to pop up into pro ball, and they're going to be um, inundating um, the big leagues really soon, and they're completely different than millennials. Um, millennials are completely different than Gen X. Um, the way the way they communicate, what they value, um, uh, how you handle them in pressure, how you handle them in stress, how do you instruct them, how do you discipline them? Um, they're all different. So the, there's all kinds of things you have to do differently to adapt. Um, Tony LaRusso, you think about this one. This is a guy that started managing in 1979 with the Chicago White Sox. And he managed, so he started 79, he managed his last game in 2011. And I was fortunate enough my whole life to kind of be a spectator of what he did. And I got to see him with the White Sox when I was a little kid. Um, I got to see him with the White Sox. I got to see him with the A's when they were powerhouse in the late 80s. Um, I got to see him uh, in St. Louis go over there in 96, uh, transition that team through the late 90s, early 2000s, and then, you know, build it to what it was uh, when he left in 2011. And the coolest thing about Tony, that that the thing that people really don't talk about, is that um, he adapted over the ages. Um, he was who the players needed in the early eighties. He was who they needed in the late eighties, the nineties. He was who they needed in the two thousands. I think he got a huge tattoo 
in like 2006, 2007, because that's when they were cool. You know, like he fit in. Um, he knew how to joke around with guys. He, he's, his personality like changed and morphed to like what the players needed. So his form of communication was absolutely outstanding. And I think that's the most important thing to be cognizant of is how you communicate with these guys. Um, because of Austin, I, I, I got a TikTok account. I haven't put any TikToks on there, but he's telling me how hey, all these young people are doing the TikTok. So I better learn this saying and get involved with it, you know, so I can know what they're talking about, know what's cool, speak their language. Um, we talked about how it's a YouTube generation, all right? Like, it's a YouTube generation. Kids these days aren't going watching hour-long TV shows. They're watching five-minute YouTube videos. What is that going to make them? It's going to make them concentrate for five minutes. When they get older, they're going to have zero capacity to concentrate because of this environment they're growing up in. So we have to understand it. We can't just be that old-school coach that says, oh, the kids of today, oh, they are so entitled. Oh, like, you know how many coaches do that and it just, like, bothers the piss out of me? Like, come on. Like, Dude, like, you are who you are. They are who they are. If you want to be good, if you want to influence over them, like, learn who they are. Learn how you communicate with them, all right? Be them. Get in their little, like, world. You know, like, don't just be your stubborn person. Nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody's going to care about you. Learn about them. Learn what's important, all right? Like, dig into the little things. Um, jump ahead. Like, so if – if we have, if we're coaching a bunch of 20 year olds right now, figure out what the teens are doing, you know, because what they're doing right now is what they're going to be doing when they're in their twenties. Stay ahead of the game. Be that coach that's one step ahead of the other coach. who's always trying to figure out now. No, you're not the coach that's going to figure out now. You're the coach that knows now because you figure out what they're doing beforehand. So that's, that's important. There's a submarine commander that I became friends with. And he says he has that problem more than anything is because what he gets is the submarines, they get people that are 18, 19 years old to go through the little school. And now like they hop in the submarine. So they're getting the different generations all the time. And they have to stay in tune with how they communicate, how they deliver the curriculum, how they teach the guys about submarine, how they get them to survive underwater for months at a time. So they got to know about the generations. They got to know about what, what is important to them, um, how you speak to them, how you discipline them. You also, this is the one thing he says is also hard. How do you do right now? They're dealing with, you got two generations of people on the ship at the same time. You got millennials and Gen Z on the ship where a couple of years ago is all like you had your Gen X commander. Then you had all millennials. Now it's, you got your Gen X commander and you have, millennials and you have gen z's you have people with complete different personalities how do you get them to get along how do you find a message that works for them all so they study this they're just not stubborn in their way of communication they're just not out there complaining on you know oh they don't do this all oh, this no 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 you learn you learn through communications you learn through building relationships you learn through speaking to friends that are dealing with people um that will come your way so you're always one step ahead of the game and you're constantly evolving. You always have to learn. You always, always, always have to learn. Always have to learn, adapt, evolve, uh, read the new books. After, I mean, I think we all read, uh, it was it Outliers? It talks about 10,000 hours of practice. You know, you got to lock it in, lock it in, practice one thing, keep going, going, going. And then 
what book comes out that's extremely popular this year is range. And it says, ah, oh, no, no, it's not about being an expert of one thing. It's about being diverse. It's about multiple things. You got to be good at a bunch of things, man. Times change. All right. Times change. You got to be ahead of the game. Be constantly evolving. Don't get stuck on what you knew 10 years ago. Learn what they're saying today. Read the newest books, read the newest articles, read the newest studies because those hitting coaches out there, they're always trying to be the one guy that is like, has an advantage over somebody else. And how do they do that? They come up with something new. They find some new study. Then next thing you know, everybody goes to him because he's got something new. Next thing you know, you become the old guy that nobody wants to listen to because you're stuck in the way. Constantly learn, constantly evolve. Be better than those hitting coaches that are uh, trying to find new things. No, you're the guy that knows old and you know new and you know what's going on now. You know because you're constantly learning, all right? You're not stuck in one way. You're constantly learning, constantly adapting. I love that, man. I love that. And I, I think when we talked the one time you mentioned being a chameleon, like a chameleon to your environment, it's like blend in, man. And that fired me up because it's like, yeah, okay, what does a chameleon do? Well, they always blend into the environments to protect themselves, right? Well, this is like somewhat the same, right? You got to protect yourself because you're protecting your job. Like, we all know the old school coach and some of us have maybe played for some old school coaches before who sits there and goes, rah, 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 rah. and like, this is my way or the highway. And this is how it's <laughs> always been done. Well, maybe that worked in 1972, but maybe now today's in 2020, when you've got, like we talked about Snapchat, TikTok, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, all these distractions, you've got these dating apps that these kids are swiping on. You've got these weird new apps that I don't even know, but my brothers and sisters have them. So I'm like in the now I'm like, what are you guys doing? Like, I'm always picking their brain because when I go talk to kids, it's like people ask, hey, what's your message to a nine-year-old? How do you talk to a nine-year-old? I can't talk to a nine-year-old. I can't talk to a 13-year-old. How do you talk to high school kids? I can only talk to college kids. you got to, like, humble yourself. And this is a story that um, a kid I work with, he's freaking brilliant, man. He's an incredible kid, and I'm plugging him right here. But he goes, we were talking the other day, and we are talking about leadership. And he's like, sometimes it's like the trampoline effect. You've got to go down and lower yourself to their level so you can bring them and bounce them back up. And I'm like, poof. That's whoa, a good you're one. 15, you're 15 years old. You dropped this bomb on me. Like, I'm That's using that, dude. One. I'm quoting you. But it's true. Like, how do you know what they're going to do if you don't have the t like, take the time to ask and learn and continue to grow in your craft? And it only helps you. It's not going to hurt you. So um, that's a massive nugget show. That freaking fires right. me up, dude. I'm ready to go to fight right now. <laughs> I'm ready to go in the game, man. Somebody give me a, a game time AB. I want it off Wilkins or Bradshaw because I know I'm going yaya left center. Um, who's uh, who wants to, who's got another question? If, if nobody does, I can, I can pop one. Ray, what do you got? Yeah, no, a little off topic, but uh, with the environment we're in right now, I know the draft's kind of a concern with a lot of guys. Um, they're talking about shortening it to maybe 10 rounds. I heard rounds. I heard they're banging it. What, what's your gut call on what the draft's going to do this year and how's that going to impact uh, you guys? Um, we just said there's a – the Blue Jays had a big old organization town hall uh, this morning. And I think they, they talked a little bit about the new agreement that the Players Association and uh, MLB teams came to yesterday. Um, and with the draft, I think that's a little bit uncertain. I, I heard five rounds. Uh, some teams, they can go over if they want. Um, that's um, the, hard, the hard thing right now is that this is a – everyone – everyone wants safety, okay? So I, I say this, everyone wants safety. Like if we said just with work, 
how can we create the best environment for somebody? You know, how can we make them feel safe where they're not going to work scared to death that they're going to do something wrong and, you know, get cut from the team or lose their position or whatever. Like, how can you deliver safety? Um, a lot of the world feels that right now because there's so much uncertainty, uh, not just in baseball, but every position you have companies that are making zero dollars right now and they have to lay off employees. So what's this doing It's creating an unsafe environment. So you have a lot of people that are just stressed out at home because they don't know how much money to save this month because they don't know what's going to happen with them next month or the company. Um, but you, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if how long uh, this layoff in baseball is going to last. You don't know how long the pandemic is going to last. You don't know. There's so many uncertainties. And so it's really creating an unsafe environment right now. Um, and it's trickling down to high school players and college players that are preparing for the draft. They don't know. They don't know where, like, they're going to be next year. They don't know what's going to happen. There's minor league teams that might fold. We don't know that. So it's 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 really, for me, like, I, I really feel for a lot of people. Um, I, um, fortunate, I'm in a, I'm in a position where I feel safe. Um, I'm happy, but there's a lot of people that don't have that feeling right now. And the draft is one of them. Um, so, I don't think anyone can say this is what's going to happen because you don't know the financial impact on major league teams. You don't know every single day these teams are going to lose money. Um, they ran models of what, how much money a team's going to make with a hundred game schedule, 150, 50 game schedule. They run all these models and no matter what model they run, every team loses a boatload of money this year, a boatload. And if you think about how much money is put out in the draft, it's a lot of money that they have to give these players. It's a lot of money. It's not just like pennies and change. You say, oh, you know, give that first rounder, um, you know, three or four million dollars. Well, you know what? That's, you know, three or four million dollars are probably like 20 or 30 employees in an organization for a, a year. You know, like, so it's like, okay. Uh, if we're losing this money and we have to budget it, are we going to spend three or $4 million on a player right now? Or are we going to have to fire 20 employees in our organization? You know, right? Like nobody really thinks about this big picture stuff. There's uncertainty right now. Um, so it's really hard. So it's unfair to say like, what do you think is going to happen? Um, what we hope happens is that, you know, baseball resumes itself in June or early July and the public can't wait for it. So tons of people watch it on TV. TV, I think is the big kicker here is not people going to the game. Like baseball needs ratings on TV to get like the TV revenue. Um, I think that my gut tells me that's the important thing. I haven't heard that, but I think that's the most important thing. Um, but when baseball is actually scheduled to start is going to be the driving force with what's going to happen with the draft because that's going to affect how much money teams are going to actually lose this year. Yeah, this is a crazy situation that obviously none of us plan for, but I never even thought about that aspect of, okay, if I invest um, $4 million in my first rounder, well, do I want him or do I want to fire 
15 coaches and my five cooks at the spring training complex and my clubhouse managers and all the other guys down the road, like that is just unbelievable. And then you mentioned the minor league complexes and the minor league teams, whether you like them or not, like there's a lot of history in these places. And these are in a lot of small towns across America that fuel their economy as well and provide jobs for them and provide experience and um, entertainment for those areas. And they've been part of those communities for so long. And now you talk about, okay, what if we don't, I mean, I had a player yesterday the other day, like, dude, I keep hearing that we might not even have a minor league season. And I'm sitting here like, whoa, what? Like, you might not even play a game? Like, I can't even imagine being a guy and in that situation where they had big hopes and aspirations for this season. And next thing you know, they don't get to play their year. And then that minor league team doesn't get any money. So they've got to fold. It's this whole trickle down effect. But it, like you said, it all starts from the top. Like everything starts from the top down. And with this, this circumstances that we're dealt, we've got to find a way to encourage and inspire other people during this time and provide value for others um, and just help people. Because we, we all know somebody who's going through something tough. And obviously, everybody on this call is out of a tech, quote unquote, job right now. I'm doing what they love. So um, that's why this is so powerful. Um, we got a couple more minutes. I just want to be respectful of everybody's time. But if anybody wants to fire off like a last closing question or any remarks or anything, fire it up, man. Um, whatever you've got, if anybody mute, let it rip. Shelly, favorite MLB baseball player growing up, who is your dude? The one guy that you watched and, and you tried to model your game after and growing up, he was the guy that you wanted to be. Um, my, oh, well, I had a, I had a couple of them, um, growing up, uh, Mark McGuire was, um, he was the coolest to me ever. Um, I still have a really good relationship with him. Uh, growing up in that clubhouse, he, he really took care of me. Um, he, he, he taught me, he taught me about hitting. He taught me how to use your mind. Um, as a kid, he helped me with <laughs> he helped me with strength training programs, um, oh, it was weight no. gain programs when I was in high school, <laughs> but, but not I was, but not with that other stuff. But it's just funny how it all worked out. Um, he like he was by far the best, and you know his stance, his little wiggle, just his power like awes you. But how good of a person he is is the best best part um Ricky Henderson the, the way he played the game and his energy was just like so much fun you know this, like when Ricky wanted to play like that was <laughs> a blast like like oh man there's nothing better than that um I'd copy all kinds of guys stances like growing up um you know I did a Mike Bordick phase for a while uh did a Paul Molitor phase for a while like like I was I was obsessed with the game I was obsessed with the history of the game um read books on you know Ty Cobb Joe DiMaggio Mickey Mantle uh, Mr. October book uh like just the history of the game I like absolutely loved it so I didn't pinpoint really one player and just run with them forever I I I really try to take a little bit of something from everybody who I absolutely loved. And, you know, there's stories from all of those books and, you know, all kinds of people, all kinds of old videos that I pulled into the game, you know, the way I ran and slid the bases from, uh, you know, 
comes from some tight cob books. Um, <laughs> so the way I wanted to act as a professional came from Joe DiMaggio books. Um, like there's anything you think of, I tried just to find little things in every single person and, and bring it to who I was off the field and on the field because, you know, there are some awesome people in this sport. Shelly, give me uh, the quick uh, two-minute touchdown here of your favorite on-the-field experience. And this could be a freaking brawl. This could be, like, Cuban Cuban mommies in the stands in Florida. Like, I remember uh, one, of the, one of the guys talking about, like, anything. Like, whatever you can think of, like, off the top of your dome, what, like, rings to your mind is, like, one of your favorite experiences. Why? And actually, before you get into this, I won't even say this, but your wisdom on how to protect yourself in a fight is incredible maybe that needs to be followed up with this but <laughs> so fellas like he's freaking teaching us like, all right guys we're gonna go through something new today and we're like nice like what do we got shelly like maybe monsterville bp work it's like how many of you been in a brawl and we're sitting like well what he's like all right you look out for him you, he's giving us the one twos of how to handle yourself in a brawl he's like you guys need to know this stuff one day and we're like let's go this is cool um favorite on the field experience why like maybe it's a brawl maybe it's you hitting a bomb in the ninth inning walk off in yankee stadium like maybe it's being there with your pops like whatever it is man like let it rip whatever you got um the brawls are always fun no matter like even if i got my butt kicked or anything it's they're always fun. i grew up with a brother and we'd fight all the time so it's like all right brawls are an excuse for a bunch of grown men to start pushing each other and wrestling and fight like i don't know it's kind of fun but you do got to watch out for those uh you know, punches in the back or the weapons getting thrown around. That was always one of the rules. I got a little manual, like how to do brawls. And rule number one, no weapons. You can't use your bat or use helmets or anything. My brother got his nose shattered with a uh, helmet. Um, I've gotten hit over the back of the head with a helmet a couple of times. I got punted <laughs> by some guy. Can't do that stuff. But they're fun, right? They're, they're all the ones I've been in, they're, they're just fun. Um, but the best moment is a player. Um, I've had some cool ones actually like doing something, you know, a game tying home run here, or, you know, game winning home run here. Uh, but the best moment, the best one is in 2007. Uh, I'm in the big leagues with the Yankees and we're playing uh, Cleveland Indians and we're in the playoffs. It's, Game four of the series, we're down two games to one. And we go to Cleveland and we lose the first two games. And we come back to New York and the paper, it says, it, it's on the front page or on the back page, George Steinberg says if the Yankees lose, uh, George Torrey will be fired, All right? So we win that game and we go to the next game and um, – Rogers are starting pitcher, but his elbow is barking. Roger Clemens, his elbow is barking. And we all know like, ah, we're in trouble today. All right. We just, we kind of like know this. Um, and it's a really weird feeling in the clubhouse. It's the first time that, you know, you see all these guys go into Tory's office and get something signed by him. It's like, it's the last time I'm going to see you, Joe. It's uh, but it, we, we knew our backup backs were against the wall. And, um, bunch of guys were getting banged up. It's a really old squad, but it was awesome. It was, it was a fun, fun group of guys. Um, I was the youngest guy in the team at 27, if you can imagine that. Um, so we uh, were in the playoffs, and I come in the game at some point, and now we're losing, and it's the top of the ninth inning, 
and I'm playing first base and Tori comes out to make a pitching change to bring in Mario Rivera. So we're losing by one or two runs. He makes a pitching change to bring in Rivera. And when Mario Rivera came in the game, Inner Sandman would get on the speakers and the old, this is the old Yankee stadium. All right. Like, like the fans are right on top of you. And it is loud. It's a hundred times louder than the new Yankee stadium, a hundred times louder than any place I've been. And when they got going, like it's shake. If you see old Yankee stadium videos of like the Boone home run, like, ah, you know, it's like shaking because the stadium would shake. Um, so they would play inner salmon so loud, like so loud. It could trump everything. But today, Joe Torre goes out to the mound, and every fan knew it was it would probably be his last game. So he had the whole stadium chanting, Joe Torre, Joe Torre. And they were so loud that you couldn't even hear inner Sandman. Like, it was on, but you couldn't hear it. So Mo's coming in, and you couldn't hear it. And I'm out in the mound <laughs> in this pitching change. I'm on the mound, and it's me, Posada, a-Rod, Jeter, Cano, and Joe Torre. Mario Rivera is coming to mound. And I'm sitting here like, who's the odd man out? Who shouldn't be here? <laughs> it's probably me. <laughs> but, like, in that moment, like, everyone kept this, like, calm, still face. And they're just, like, sitting there, like, in the moment. And you could tell Joe, like, was just oblivious at all, but you couldn't ignore what was going on. It was, like, gave me goosebumps out there. I was – I was paralyzed in that moment, and it was a moment that I'll never forget. It was um, how special the Yankee fans truly are, how much baseball means to them, how much Joe Torre meant to them, how much old Yankee Stadium meant to them, um, how awesome they can be. And I, it was one of the most grateful opportunities I had as a player is to be able to stand on that mound in that moment and just feel that energy and be a part of that. That's absolutely incredible, man. It's, I can't even imagine being on the mound with those names, like, surrounding you on the, on the mound, and you're sitting there just like, where am I? Like, yep. surreal, yeah, surreal experience. Like, should I leave now? It's like, where's my ride? Like, who's cutting me? Is he coming out to bang me off the squad? Um, <laughs> that's beautiful, man. It's, it's unbelievable. Shelly, I wanted to say thank you from, like, the bottom of my heart, man, for coming on here with us, hanging out. And, like, before we go, man, I want to share a quick story on leadership and um, your brother, man. Like, I just want to acknowledge him and, and – his impact in my life in such a short time we played together or not i've never played with my wish <laughs> um he was with he came and visited and we were in visalia and we were somewhere i think it was lake elsinore and we were hitting and i remember vividly i'm hitting on, on the bp and, and he's just coaching us up like he had no reason to be there he didn't have to be there you guys are shooting the shit like everybody's having fun we're enjoying our time but he's coaching us up and he pulled me aside to like ask me my approach and we started to talk about approach and then we got on to what other guys that he knew um like who he played with and, and who he studied, what they were thinking at the plate. And it was a big turning point in my career because I was hitting 180 at this time. Like I was awful at the break. I'm like, I'm, I remember talking to you. I'm like, Shelly, am I getting banged? Like, where am I going? I'm not playing as much. What do I do? And from then on, like stats wise increased a ton, but it was that moment where I remember I'm like, that is leadership. Like he had no reason to say a word to any of us. He could have just hung out with you as bro and, and the coaches and that's it. But he was pulling each one of us aside, coaching us up, like even more than the coaches. It was unbelievable. And his leadership, that stuck with me forever. And I will forever remember that and forever be grateful for that and your family, Shelly. And um, 
just sending you my best as always, man. This was incredible to have you on here. And guys, appreciate you guys always chiming in with great questions and, and just making this thing happen, the power of technology, the power of uh, what happens when you encourage others and, and look out for them. So uh, this was this was beautiful, man. Thank you, Shelly. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, Austin. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. Of course. Later, guys. Have a good day. Thanks, Shelly. Peace. See you Thanks, guys. Shelly. It was awesome.